Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what. Was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. Elizabeth Dutton. Zarin Burnett. I know you. I know you. All right. Well, I've been waiting a week to ask you this. Mm -hmm. Do you know it's ridiculous? I do. Yes, I do. Do you see me over here waiting to hear it? Yeah. Okay. So check it out. Our fans' biggest passion points are food mashups. Oh, Lord. Who am I I talking about? Our fans' biggest uh, passion points are food mashups. Americans? I don't know. Passion points. Well, it could be the Rude Dudes, mm-hmm. right? But no, it's no. Uh, no, it's marble. They're better than that. It's, they are better <laughs> than that. Uh, it's marble slab creamery, which I guess is like a southern East Coast version of Coldstone Creamery. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Whatever. I know marble slab creamery. Uh, I don't know how they live. So um, they paired up, and now this isn't new. This is apparently a couple years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but they paired up with. And now you're going to the bank of mashups. Well, yeah, they they <sighs> have. There's like a a frequent flyer, a repeat mm-hmm. offender in uh-huh. mashups, one okay. that comes up a lot. All right. And I think I've talked about them. I don't even Is it know. Ranch if I Valley have ice yet. cream or Hidden no, Valley Ranch no, ice cream? No, no, it's not Ranch Valley ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> that that Ranch Valley flavor. Um, no, it's Cheetos. Oh, Cheetos. I don't think I've talked about Cheetos no, yet. No, you did with the shoe. With, with that the was Cheetos. the Cheese It's. Oh, cheese. See, I don't even listen. Another cheese. Food. I'm just, it's just like, wah. I just don't. <laughs> well, so Cheetos, I get a lot of these uh, tips from uh, listeners. Mm-hmm. And Cheetos comes up a lot. Oh, God. Like, they make, like, all sorts of gross stuff. And you see it out and about. Like, a lot of the taquerias around here do, oh, like, yeah, the yeah, hot yeah, you, Cheetos. You see it, yeah, everywhere. You know, taco or quesadilla. Oh, they'll put that in anything. You want a fried fish with Cheetos? Yeah, Here you go. exactly. Well, apparently the, the marble slab creamery will throw it in some of their ice cream. Why? Uh, they said they can't wait to bring a little mischief to summer, which was two <laughs> years ago. Um, they've also, they did like a Kraft mac and cheese ice cream. So, you right. know, they're not innocent in all of this. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so they, they, they said that marble slab creamery and Cheetos have a lot in common. Our brands are both fun, witty, youthful, and provide a playful release from reality. 
a playful for release like from what, reality. Who is a brand? What's in offers, the Cheetos that they're like? I just want to dip out of reality. Let me just go. <laughs> Don't bother me. I got my Cheetos. Skipping reality. Well, so That's then there's amazing. also now put that, down the peyote. Here's some Cheetos. <laughs> that tip about the ice cream came from listener Jen Silva. Okay, thanks, Jen. Listener really Allie Wilkins it. strikes again. She's already given us a tip. She came through again. Allie, why are you going to do it to me twice? The twenty in twenty nineteen Fashion Week. Did you know that there was a Cheetos uh, Couture show? No, because I, I get out of the house. It was like <laughs> <laughs> it was like some serious budget project runway stuff. I bet it was. I mean, a lot of like floofy orange and snake print and God help us all. But yeah, like, uh, so Cheetos needs to lay off. They need Mm. to back up. Oh, yeah. Just Just stay in your lane, Cheetos. Yeah, yeah. Give me crunchy goodness and give me snacks. That's what I want. But I mean, it's like, I feel like these things are getting wilder and wilder. And we also have to- Desperate and more desperate is what I get. We also have to really think about our definition of a mashup, though. Because I am getting some stuff where it's like- What's your definition of a mashup? Can you believe I just asked that question? It has to be sort of like opposite ends of the spectrum. Okay. So like, I mean, ice cream and Cheetos, I think that's on the line for me. Because it's two foods? Because it's like a sweet and a savory that you normally wouldn't ever pair together. two foods that would normally be paired together. Yeah. But I mean, that's not always true. And so some stuff, like I've gotten a lot of um, like zebra cakes, that those little Debbie Mm -hmm. zebra cakes. I don't know. There's some sort of junk food thing. Yeah, they're like black and white. But there's like a candle. Like a zebra. So it's candles. So like, it's just going to be like a sweet smelling, gross smelling candle. Guess what? We got a ton of those in the world. So I don't really count that as a mashup. Or like a cologne that smells like leather. Not really a mashup. Yeah, because a lot of colognes smell like leather. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Especially like the Demeter colognes that are like... Sure. Smell precise. Let's pretend anyway. like I know what you're talking about. Anyway, whatever. Okay, I've I've had enough of the mashups myself. So that's it. <laughs> well, that is all ridiculous. Thank you. You know, I got, I got something for you that is definitely ridiculous. Yes, please. The man who started America's war on drugs. Uh-huh, that's ridiculous. His name was Harry J. Anslinger. Okay. He's what you would call a prick and a hypocrite. <laughs> He's That's not a judgment call on my part, by the way. That's a fact. I mean, that's just known. He oh, was, I see. He was the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, right? He was also a drug dealer. Specifically, wait, 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 wait. Yes, specifically, he was the connect for a sitting U.S. senator's morphine supply. Wait, wait. Yes, that man, that senator, he was the one who started the Red Scare witch hunt. He teamed up with the man who started the war on drugs, and together, those two men decided to change American history forever. What? It was that classic example, Elizabeth, of do as I say, not as I do these drugs myself. Oh, God. <laughs> This is Ridiculous Crime, a podcast about absurd and outrageous capers, heists, and cons. It's always 99% murder-free and 100% ridiculous. Yes. Elizabeth. Uh Uh-huh. I came in hot today. Yeah, you did. I said the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was supplying horse, or in this case, morphine, to a sitting U.S. senator. I didn't just say he was a drug dealer. I said he was supplying drugs to a sitting U.S. senator. That's a lot. Who was this U.S. senator? Well, you said Red Scare. What do you know about Senator 
Joseph McCarthy. Terrible, terrible human being. Right? Yeah. Now, I'm going to tell you a lot about him today, but uh, I knew you'd be somewhat familiar. But Mm -hmm. just to lay out some biographical details. Yeah. Joseph McCarthy, he was born in 1908. He was the son of a Wisconsin farmer. He was the fifth of nine kids. At age 14, he dropped out of school to help the family on the farm. Very Midwestern, very common at that time. Later, at 20 years old, he went back and attended high school. Finished in one year. Smart kid, right? Good for him. Him being the son of a hard scrabble farmer, he had to go and work his way through college. So what does he do? He goes off to Marquette, a Jesuit university. Mm-hmm. It's the Catholic University in Milwaukee. While he's there, he becomes a boxer. So he's fighting to be in school. He also <laughs> he, he earns some coin as a coach, right? He develops at this point his, quote, bare-knuckle boxing mentality to life, right? So he graduates from Marquette. He attends law school at that same university. He passed the bar. Becomes a lawyer. He's ambitious, this young Joe McCarthy. I'm telling you, one year after graduating law school, Elizabeth, what does he do? He runs for district attorney. No. One year after law school, he decides I could be the DA. Yeah. So he runs and he lost. He was young. So what did he expect, right? So Joe McCarthy, he goes back to begin being, you know, a first-year lawyer. And to make ends meet, he's having trouble because, you know, he's ambitious, but he's a first-year lawyer. There's not a lot of work. So he starts gambling. He just gambles to make ends meet. It works. He gambles regularly, heavy. He's apparently good at it. A few years later, he decides, I'm going to run for office again. This time he wants to be a judge. He's like, I've been a lawyer for a few years. I should be a judge. (laughs) I'm a gambler. Yeah, exactly. And he wins that election. So he becomes a judge. Now, to beat the incumbent, the young Joe McCarthy, he relied on the old American tradition of lies and falsehoods. He, uh, The Joseph McCarthy uh, character, if you will, the persona he became, he found that he was particularly good at lying professionally as a politician. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, he lied that his opponent was 73 years old and unfit for office due to his age. Mm-hmm. Turns out his opponent was not 73 years old. He was actually 66 years old. <laughs> but the lie worked because the voters never uh... checked the facts and instead they elected Joe McCarthy and he becomes the state's youngest circuit judge to ever be elected. Then come the warriors, Elizabeth. So what does young, ambitious Joe McCarthy want to do? Well, as we know, World War II begins September 1st, 1939. The Nazis invade Poland. America doesn't enter the war till 1941 after following the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. So that surprise attack, it gets America into a wartime mood. Everyone's all gin because before that, we're isolationist, as you know. Yeah. So Joseph McCarthy, he joins up in the military. He becomes a soldier, but he did so reluctantly. Mm-hmm. Now, Joe McCarthy, he had a friend, his campaign manager, no less, who was a fellow judge and an attorney. This dude's name was Urban, uh, Urban P. Van Susteren. Now, when the U.S. enters the war, right, Van Susteren, he's all loyal and gung-ho. He signs up. He urges his buddy, Joe. He's like, come on, man, you got to join up to us. Go down to the draft office. Joe's like, I got other ideas. <laughs> he's like, wait a minute. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I'm a judge, man. I got, I got stuff I got to do. I'm going to stay here. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't know if I need to join the war effort, right? And so his buddy, Van Susteren, he ain't hearing it. He's like, he tells Joe, and I quote, be a hero, join the Marines, right? Joe's like, well, I prefer to be a hero at home. And Van Susteren, he's taken aback by his friends. Remember, he was also the campaign manager, so he knows this guy well. He knows his good side, his bad side, everything. He's still surprised by this cowardice, and he asks him. He's like, what's the matter? You got in your blood? And so Joe McCarthy's like, whoa. So Joe McCarthy decides, you know what? I'm going to be good to my buddy's word. He goes. He needs to go out there. And his plan is to go grab some of that glory from himself. It would be good for politics back home. So he needs to get close enough to the war to get some glory, but not so close that he's actually in danger. So Joe McCarthy decides, okay, since I've been bullied into going and, you know, kind of fighting the Nazis, I'm going to at least go in as an officer. So he joins the Marines as a first lieutenant. And according to his war records, I looked these up, Joseph McCarthy, he begins the war as 
an intelligence officer. He was aboard a dive bomber, so he was up there in the skies. He, that helped him a lot in terms of getting away from some danger. Mm-hmm. But he was also in a dive bomber that was not apparently at the front of the uh, attacks. He was not part of, like, the bomb squads oh, okay. that were doing the major, like, oh, we were getting catching flack and yeah, all that kind of say, stuff. That's not, like, a safe spot, but I guess no, if you're... but if it is, if you're in the rear guard. Patrolling Nebraska or <laughs> exactly. something. So he apparently flew 12 combat missions, but they weren't real combat missions, as I kind of have stressed. Uh-huh. For instance, okay, during one bomber run, he emptied his... He was a tail gunner, so he emptied the bomber's tail guns into a stand of very threatening palm trees. His aim was so true, and he hit so many of those enemy trees, Elizabeth, uh-huh. that the crewmen, they gave him a nickname. They're like, way to go, tail gunner Joe. And oh, it, that nickname stuck to him. Now, they did not mean it as a compliment, but yeah. he took it like one. So after the war, he calls himself old tail gunner Joe. <laughs> so he claims his glory from the war years, right? He self-reports that he was in, not in 12, but get this, 32 aerial missions. He ups the number. He picked that number specifically because it was important, because that number qualified him for the Distinguished Flying Cross Medal. Oh, you're kidding me. Which he was awarded. You're... Seven years after the war. Oh, <laughs> because by God. then, old tail gunner Joe was a U.S. senator, and the medal was given to him due to his, quote, political influence. Oh, my God. <laughs> but anyway, during the war, old tail gunner Joe, he did get an actual letter of commendation. Once he was proud to show anyone. This letter was signed by Admiral Chester W. Nimitz. Now, he oh, yeah, was yeah, yeah. chief of naval operations. Big man, right? But come to find out, old tail gunner Joe wrote the letter himself. He wrote it as You're he prepared me. other letters, real letters for soldiers to be commended by the admiral, letters for him to sign later. And then tail gunner Joe sort of slipped his letter <gasps> of commendation into the line, had the admiral sign it, and boom, done deal. Now Joe McCarthy was an official war hero. We got the letter to prove it and everything. Oh, I did not know any of this part. Of, oh, right? wow. So, Elizabeth, also, what do all good war heroes have besides medals and letters of commendation? Mm. They have war wounds, right? Yeah. They gotta have a war wound. Yeah. So did old tail gunner Joe have a war wound to show off? You better believe he did, Elizabeth. <laughs> what war hero doesn't? So, well, hey, hell, if he's gonna give himself one, he had to have a real good one, right? So even if the war was over, he would make sure he had a war wound. Over time, old tail gunner Joe, he would tell his reporters and his colleagues in the Senate that he had broken his leg in the war. Now, sometimes he'd tell the story he'd broken his leg in an airplane crash. Other Mm -hmm. times the story went he broke his leg as a result of anti-aircraft fire. The truth, Elizabeth, was his war wound was a result of a shipboard party. Oh, my God. So when sailors cross the equator for the first time, you've heard about this? They have the little celebration? Okay. So sailors have not crossed the equator they're called polywalks. And mm-hmm. once you cross the equator, now you're called a shellback. So when he got his, like, shellback crossing, all the sailors and seamen on board, they got drunk, they started partying. Oh, yeah, they do. They put on costumes. Exactly. They do, yeah. you, you know all about it, right? I have, uh, my grandfather was a career Navy, and um, I have photos from when he did it, and then as subsequently when his ship would cross, yeah. and they would have the big parties. Totally. They do, like, like, like a drag show sometimes. Yeah, yeah. They do, like, the whole bit, right? Yeah. Well, anyway, while he was, you know, sitting there, you know, drunk, partying with the boys, he bro- he slipped, broke his leg partying. That was his war wound. <laughs> Old tail, jo- brittle tail gunner Joe. Joe. Yeah. So after the war years, what does Joseph McCarthy do next now that he's a war hero? Well, he's ready to be a politician, so he runs, goes back and he runs for U.S. Senate. He did this way. I'm sure I should back up. He did that during the war years. He couldn't that's wait a, for the war to end. That's a big trajectory to go from j- new judge, in essence, yeah. to then to Senate. To U.S. Senate, yeah. Yeah, he didn't do anything at the state level. And by the way, he still on, was on active duty. 
When he ran? Yes, in 1944, when he ran, he was on, he was an active soldier oh, in theater, and he decides, oh, I'm going to beat the local Wisconsin incumbent. And he lost. Yeah, oh, okay. because Wisconsin was like, bro, you have a job to do? Why don't you do that yeah. one? You're over there well, fighting the not, war. He's not coming to any debates. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's just missing everything. I need town not, halls. He's not going to be able to be there to vote. No. But anyway, it's not going to stop old Joe. Two years later, when he's finally back in 46, the, he, this, no, once again, newly self-made war hero, mm-hmm. he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a senator, darn it. So this time he goes and runs for the other Senate seat in Wisconsin. But this time he was smart enough to get backing. He went out and he got the Republican. Party bosses in Wisconsin, that guy to back old tail gunner Joe. And once that dude took him under his wing, now he's a real candidate. Yeah. Right? So he goes on the attack. He's got money. He's got the backing of the boss. He starts lying his off. He claims his opponent was a coward and the man refused to go to war and refused to enlist. The truth, Elizabeth? Oh, well, no. his opponent was 46 years old when Pearl Harbor was attacked. He was too old to enlist, yeah. even if he wanted to. Yeah. So the army would have been like, uh, thanks, love, we're good. We don't yeah. need it. You know? yeah. But what, what did the truth matter to Joe McCarthy? So he openly also claimed that his opponent was a war profiteer, one who made a huge fortune while old tail gunner Joe was overseas fighting to save America from the Nazis and the Japanese Empire. Yeah. The truth, turns out, the opposite was true. It was Joseph McCarthy who was the actual war profiteer. Oh, God. <laughs> he made a tidy fortune, nearly a million dollars in today's money by investing in the stock market during the war. But there was this little mystery about where he got the money to initially invest. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that mystery never got it's solved. Not family money yeah. because he came from farm folk. Yeah, who he had no money. Struggled. And he wasn't getting paid that well as a judge. He's like just putting, socking away this. Yeah. So everyone's like, where did the money come from, Joe? Anyway, he goes on, he wins the election. Now he becomes Wisconsin newest U.S. senator. (sighs) Yeah. So let's take a little break. And when we get back, we'll dive into all the nitty, the gritty, the heroin, and the ugly. So back in a flash. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. 
Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. All right, Elizabeth. Zavin. We're back. Hey, what's up? So Joe McCarthy. Yeah. You digging him? Oh, he's he's is, a peach. Isn't he a fun one? He just gets better and better the more I learn. Yeah, you never hear about this side of Joe McCarthy. You always hear about what he did once he became a U.S. Right. senator. I wanted to but share how he became. But just the incessant lying. Yes. God. Yeah, nothing new under the sun. So no. Joseph McCarthy, in his first term in the Senate, he goes out there, he makes a name for himself. I mean, he did this by kneeing a journalist in the crotch. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this, had, this, had, this had happened in the cloakroom of a Washington, D.C. women's club. That's where the junior senator was set to give a talk to an audience of women. And somehow he got in a scuffle and he need this guy in the crotch. But now tail gunner Joe, he claimed he didn't need the journalist in the family jewels. Instead, he said he slapped the taste out of that man's mouth. He went on the record. He wanted to be known. He slapped He's him. a slapper. So I, I'm going to think that he did a little bit of the dirty knee. I think so. Maybe both. He Why not both? rather cowardly. So. Yeah, well, you know, I he's a... He likes to talk brave. He likes yeah. to talk. I mean, he was a boxer, so the guy can take oh, a punch. Oh, that is true. I forgot about you know, he, that. He's not a, like, uh, all talk. He just... Yeah, he's not... Um, but he's also not like... He's not like Harry Reid boxer. No, no, no. I he's wouldn't pretend say to so. talk about Senate boxing. Senate boxing. <laughs> and now, whatever happened in that cloakroom, that made his reputation early on in the Senate, right? So, once again, I told you, he called it his bare-knuckle way of being. So, he mm-hmm. starts calling this bare-knuckle politics. He's like, I'm just known for my bare-knuckle politics. You... Bare, he keeps saying bare-knuckle politics. Anytime you look up, it's bare knuckle politics. Yeah. That's like he wants to be known as. So, Ugh. and also he promised a lot more where that came from. So he's like a real scrappy fighter, right? <laughs> now, this at this point, we're in the 1950s, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Right, the war is over. It's the 1950s, and night by 1952, Senator Joseph McCarthy and his fellow politicians—they've already become irritated with old tail gunner Joe. He's barely been in the Senate for a few months, and they're already like, I hate this guy. Just, I he's cannot just stand their him. Last nerve. Completely. Some of his colleagues have already lo- lobbied to have him censured for his behavior, right? Others have, are now attempting to discredit him in the press. Some turn to the power of ugly rumors, and I mean especially ugly ones for 1952. Oh, I love that. There was a publisher in Nevada named Hank Greenspun. Uh, he, yes! You know him. He uh, he published the Las, Las Vegas, Vegas Sun. Sun. Yes. I used to write for the Sun. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I was going to say... I worked for his kids. I thought you worked for the Las Vegas Review Journal, so no. I was going to say your alma mater or the Las Vegas Review, Review Journal. It's no. the Las Vegas Sun. Sun. Okay, well, your yeah. alma mater, Hank Greenspun, the publisher, mm-hmm. he was in a personal battle with Senator Joseph McCarthy. He was called to testify in his ongoing witch hunts and his witch hunt hearings, if you will, his, his congressional hearings, over yeah. and over again, he testified, right? So he wrote a story that Tailgunner Joe was a secret homosexual. Oh. Yeah, he, in his daily column from October 25th, 1952, in Las Vegas Sun, Greenspan wrote this smear attack saying that, quote, it is common talk among homosexuals in Milwaukee who run in the White Horse Inn, the Senator Joe McCarthy is often engaged in homosexual activities. So that's how 
willing he was go- going is he wanted to get as dirty as he could in the 1950s yeah, politics. Yeah, at that time, like, yeah. well, I mean, and even today, people kind of cast aspersions. But, oh, completely. You know, but I mean, but like, they, they, a, a, to make it an insult. They got know? in the mud with Joe, is my point. Right, right, so, right. So, about this cat Greenspan, we should do uh, a whole episode on him. I was mm-hmm. just, I just barely scratched the surface. And what I found in 1947, he was the press agent at the Flamingo Hotel and Casino, aka the first casino in Vegas. Yeah. He was the one who had to sell America on Vegas. And, and he did it. And his boss, mind you, was the swanky gangster Bugsy Siegel. Uh-huh. So after he gets Vegas going, what does he do? He establishes a newspaper. So it was, you know, in 19, this is 1949, he buys the Sun. In 1950, he makes it his. Now, in between being Bugsy Siegel's press agent and founding the Las Vegas Sun and giving himself the daily column so he could attack a senator, yeah. he conducted... Uh, Basically, I don't know how to put this, a smuggling case of a World War II surplus. He was arrested <laughs> and convicted of violating the U.S. Neutrality Act. Yeah, oh. According to his FBI file, in the late 40s, Greenspan had been running 50 caliber machine guns to Israel that he had smuggled out of Hawaii, out of the military surplus, sent them to Mexico, where they were then smuggled to Israeli fighters. He gets busted on this. For his punishment, he just has to pay 10 grand. Oh, that's He like saw some... no prison time. So yeah. clearly he was protected. Like, yeah, you can see so that. Yeah. This guy Greenspun, he's not afraid to go after this schmuck senator from Wisconsin. Right. He's like, I'll take him <laughs> on. <laughs> so he just keeps attacking him in his weekly column. And like, there was some stuff when it doesn't matter, but he. He gets bad. It gets real bad. And I'll just, you know, so the smears come out. J. Edgar mm-hmm. Hoover, now, he's alighted by this. He's like, oh, he has to get involved because the legendarily unscrupulous head of the FBI, uh-huh. he grabbed onto scandal and salacious like a baby goes for mother's milk. It's just like, oh, oh give me some of that. He, he was like, yeah, thirsty for it. Yeah. He loved the He lived off the of dirt. it. Yeah. yeah. And the, the creepier, the weirder, the better. Completely. It was his mana. It was mm-hmm. his, like, give, this kept him going. Mm-hmm. It, it crossed the desert of time for this. <laughs> anyway, he immediately has his G-men investigate if there was any truth to these rumors. Now, he finds a letter from this one army lieutenant who claimed that he'd slept with the senator, and he finds a bunch of other rumors in Washington, but J. Edgar Hoover determines, and he announces that old tail gunner Joe's no homosexual. Mm-hmm. So, a year after Greenspan's column in 1953, Joe McCarthy he marries a researcher in his office, uh, someone he'd married. So he marries his secretary, essentially, right? Yeah. And everyone says this is uh, to quell talk about his sexuality. Sure. Now, despite all these many personal enemies and these serious attacks that are being leveraged against him, old tail gutter Joe, he keeps his position in the U.S. Senate. But not only that, he grows in power. At first, he was this isolated figure, a man who always ate alone in the Senate lunchroom. Yeah. But then Elizabeth, just like Steve Martin's the jerk, he found his special purpose. <laughs> he hates these cans. <laughs> totally. In 1952, he finds that a witch hunt can earn him friends, fame, infamy alike. Yeah. And so the news coverage, oh my God, the news coverage. So he, his name is now known from coast to coast. He loves this. This is all Joe needs to hear. It's like, oh, everyone's talking about Joe McCarthy. So he starts stoking the flames of his communist witch hunt with his speech. 1950, Wheeling, West Virginia, he claims a quote, the State Department is infested with communists. I have here in my hand a list of 205, a list of names that were made known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party and who nevertheless are still working and shaping policy in the State Department. Well, that's a major claim. That is. So that he is. had a secret list, Elizabeth. So <laughs> Very super Claims like secret. that, they can't be ignored, though. So the Senate votes to unanimously, mind you, to conduct an investigation. So the Tidings Committee is, is launched, right? Now, this is never intended to be a serious committee. It's a, it's a show committee. It's just yeah. meant to, like, make people see, that's look, we did something. That's, you know, that's a common Washington trope. Yeah, like, look, we're, we're, we're theater. We're not <laughs> yeah. really doing yeah. stuff. Meanwhile, we have real issues. But no, continue yeah. with the theater. So Democratic Senator Millard Tidings himself, he said, quote, let me have him, this is McCarthy, for three days in public hearings and he'll never show his face in the Senate again. 
So now how wrong was he? I know, right? Right? <laughs> so old glad tidings missed on that one. So the first <laughs> investigation was the beginning of the Red Scare and the years of the this we got marks the rise of McCarthyism. So mm-hmm. Now, the senator, he said of his own, this new term, McCarthyism, he said, quote, McCarthyism is Americanism with its sleeves rolled. Oh, good God. <laughs> like that. See, that's all bare-knuckle politics. So now he's decided, uh, you know, okay, well, we'll skip ahead to Elizabeth. I just, I, I really want to tell you this. Uh-huh. Can you guess which American political family dynasty did the most to empower and legitimize Senator Joseph McCarthy? Which American, American? political family dynasty? We only have a few of them. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't and know. And it's not the Adams family. So I'll just tell you oh, that. Not well, John Adams. I was writing it no. on this piece of paper. And it was... no. The Kennedys. Well, that's what I, I mean, I just couldn't imagine. Yeah, but... the, the Catholic connection. Oh, that was the reason. The Irish ca- oh, that sweet okay, marriage yeah, yeah, yeah. of anti-communism and Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> the most virulent anti-communists of the mid-century were Catholics. Yeah, that was their weirdly. bag, right? So Joe McCarthy, Catholic, Kennedy's Catholic. Mm-hmm. They line up there. Now, Joseph Kennedy, he was a former bootlegger and a gangster, and he was shepherding his sons into politics. Yeah. He wants to go legit. He's like, Senator Kennedy, President Kennedy. Anyway, he's eager for the one of them to be elected president. That's where he's got his eyes set on. He got to, he wanted to be he got to be ambassador to Ireland. Yep. But he really wanted to be president. So Joe Kennedy thought the other Irish Joe in politics could be helpful to his boys. So McCarthy could soft pedal the idea of a papist holding high office. Now, that was a big deal. Right? You, yeah. you don't even hear that term anymore, a papist. Uh-uh. And for those who don't know, a papist is somebody who is a Catholic. A, yeah. It goes basically in the 50s, most Americans were distrustful of Catholics. Well, yeah, they didn't know, are you beholden to the Pope or mm-hmm. are you beholden to the American people? That yeah. was like, yeah, did, who, to whom were you loyal? They really believed that the Pope could tell the president President, look, I need you to go do this. And they're like, oh, I got to do it. The yeah. Pope told me. I got to go kiss his ring. Yeah. There you go. So that was a problem for Joe Kennedy. But then they had Joe McCarthy kind of ahead of them. So if he did right, and he did right by the good of America and blah, 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 then his Kennedy boys could too. So they decided to help Joseph McCarthy, you know, win office. Because remember, he's not popular. He's not looking like he's going to be a two-term senator. Mm-hmm. So old tail gunner Joe gets tight with the Kennedys. He actually dated two of the Kennedy daughters. Oh, really? He dated Pat and Eunice. So you can often find him at the Hyannisport compound in Massachusetts. Interesting. Yeah, so despite his unpopularity, the fact that he's getting tight with the Kennedys helps him because they then put all of their efforts behind him and they get him reelected, right? Wow. Meanwhile, the Senate is like trying to sideline him. He gets named the uh, chairman on government operations. It was supposed to be just like a sideline for him. They yeah. just shunt him off. He'll, he'll just do some business over there. But it turns out there's also inside of that a secret powerful subcommittee called the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. Mm. And that's what Joseph McCarthy mm-hmm. used to start his witch hunts. Yep. And by the way, he had to pay back some favors. So what does he do? He's like, oh, I need to hire people. He goes in for his a his his team of investigators, he hires some lawyers, two rising legal stars of note, a 27-year-old named Robert F. Kennedy. Uh-huh. He goes and joins, and then probably no doubt a favor to his father. Then there's another star legal mind who would be the future mob lawyer for two of the five families of New York and New Jersey, and later a Trump lawyer, Roy Cohn. Oh, God. It was a power show, Elizabeth. Oh, God. <laughs> Just the center, the nexus of dark energy. <laughs> so now the ground is set for Joe McCarthy's meteoric rise and for him to change the very face of of American politics and yeah. really the culture. So he was right there, right at the time, the early 1950s. Everything's been primed for him because America's about to descend into paranoia and delusions, and he's going to be a prime driver. So we got bebop and beatniks. We got the hula hoop and suburban, you know, grass yards and everything. But also we got also the civil rights movement. Yeah. People are getting a little weird about that. Suddenly there's commies everywhere. Now everyone's freaking out. And the commies, according to the people like Joe McCarthy, they have plans to take down America. Sinister plans, Elizabeth. They're plotting in opium dens in Red China right at this oh, yeah. very moment. 
moment. Totally. Allegedly, the commies were conspiring with the Red Chinese to grow opium and import the morphine and heroin into the U.S. And then the commies in Red China would create a generation of drug addict American teens, Elizabeth. And you know what that means? <laughs> Forget Elvis. Forget your rock and roll. That would undermine the nation. Who would protect the good Americans from this grave new menace? Well, enter our man, Tailgunner Joe. So, of course, he's the one who first finds these suspected commies and brings them to light. He creates the panic and then plays firefighter. It's yeah, a perfect it's role perfect. for him, right? Bare knuckle boxing. I like how they're going to blame China when really the CIA was going to take care of that for them in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, just give them time. Just, yeah, hold on, guys. We're going to a whole business. <laughs> so the Senate, his Senate subcommittee, the McCarthy's, they start investigating rumors of communists in the U.S. military. He starts with his Signal Corps. Then he moves on to finding compromised homosexuals in the government who can be turned by the commies. Then he doubles back to finding communists because that makes for better headlines. So mm -hmm. now full steam ahead on the Red Square. Meanwhile, his team, the team, remember like Bobby Kennedy, Roy Cohn, they right. have their doubts. Like Bobby Kennedy even said of uh, McCarthy's subcommittee that, quote, no real research was ever done. Most of the investigations were instituted on the basis of some preconceived notion by the chief counsel of it or his staff members and not on the basis of any information that had been developed. It's, a, it's you know, it's a tradition. Yeah, they're just running they're around there. Like just making stuff up and chasing their, their uh -huh. illusions, right? Now, even the shark in lawyer's clothing, Roy Cohn, he conceded horrible, by the way. to others that Senator McCarthy undermined his own battles with communism with, quote, his penchant for the dramatic and, uh, <laughs> quote, by making statements that could be construed as promising too much. So basically, he was just lying and selling things. Right. So, but what did Joseph McCarthy care about that? He didn't care. He had witnesses to grill. He had lives to ruin on to live catch. TV, Elizabeth. <laughs> oh, God. You know that classic food. question, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Mm -hmm. You remember that? Yeah, that's him. Yes. Well, yeah. that became a, a refrain, a chorus, a pop song chorus across America in 1952 and 1953. Oh, yeah. No, it, it was a scary time. Oh, completely. I make light of it. creatives and... and People like my grandma. <laughs> like, oh, you know, it was, yeah. it was scary. Now, the reason Joseph McCarthy got so famous so fast is because he got his, his subcommittee hearings on TV. He was real tight with the press. And he's like, yeah, bring your cameras in. So yeah. for two years, there's just a ton of hearings. They're all on TV. And keep in mind, TV basically only comes about 1948, so mm -hmm. we're at 52. There's not everyone has TVs. Not it's a, a whole big lot deal. On. There's not a lot of good programming. <laughs> yeah. Joseph McCarthy becomes one of the first big TV stars. Yeah, he's on all the time, and he's so uh. heated and it's dramatic. Yeah. Anyway, the witnesses he's calling to testify before his witch hunt trials. They aren't just the famous Hollywood stars that you hear about Trumbo the blacklisted. And, yeah, the yeah. screenwriters, Dalton Trumbo. No, there are also a lot of regular everyday Americans, and they all yep. had their lives ruined by his allegations. Now, a witness, they could be accused of being a communist because they were, one, a member of a union that had communists in his yeah, membership. Yeah, exactly. Or a witness could be accused of being a communist because they had purchased, say, an insurance policy from an organization that was later designated to be a communist front by Joseph McCarthy. Yeah. Or my favorite, though, this is my favorite, were the book club commies. One witness was accused of being a communist because their great books book club had read Karl Marx. <laughs> now, if I'm not mistaken, your mother's is a great book club's great yeah, books she's, club member? She's in, yeah, she is a member of actually two different great books. Wow. Book See, clubs, your yeah. mama would have been a commie. Oh, it would have been. <laughs> <laughs> Now, during those years of McCarthyism, there were many folks in power in Washington who despised him. As I've yeah. pointed out, they distrusted him. They thought he was deranged, a danger to the republic. But they did very little to stop him because McCarthy had the people in a full froth. They didn't want that being aimed at them. So they right. had to be smart about how they took him down. Well, and everyone knows he's a liar. Yes. So it's like he's, he'll, he'll say, say anything. whatever. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to, you know, 
Exactly. So when you, when you are unbeholden to the truth, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you you can pretty much fly over anything. It doesn't matter because yeah. it's all lies. You're you're powered by lies. Well, and you have this new era of television, mm-hmm. and so you have like people fast, getting fast. fast, brief bits of information mm-hmm. into their home. Yes. And so you not not everything is going to be able to be fully explained or fleshed out or investigated. Yes. Or or corrected. So yeah. let's say the statement gets out there, and then well, later yeah, on it you, gets corrected. You can't unring those bells. Not everyone hears the corrections. Yeah. So now looking back, you have to wonder, why did Joseph McCarthy act like he did? His subordinates, Roy Cohn, RFK, they both called him ill-prepared. They said he was mercurial, petty. Sometimes he was messianic. He could be prone to delusions. To my ears, Elizabeth, what I hear, there's a clear explanation for why Joseph McCarthy might be focused on threats only he saw, those enemies only he perceived. It's obvious to me. Dude was high as hell. He was was high as hell. Yeah, he's the drogas. So it turns out this was actually an open secret in Washington. It could have been used to take down Joseph McCarthy. But unlike his suspected homosexuality, the people thought that we can't put that out there. That's unfair. So this was the the line they would not cross. So it never gets used against him. But it also helped explain his paranoia, his odd behavior, right? Because Joseph McCarthy was a full-on dope junkie. Like, a, a morphine daily addict dope junkie. Wow. Like Charlie Parker dope junkie. Wow. Yes, like I Lenny Bruce dope junkie. Yes. I did not know that. So, you know, like, like so he, do you know why he felt safe to use morphine on the daily as a sitting U.S. senator in Washington, D.C., while he ran a witch hunt of morality with all the press following him? Because his dealer was the U.S. government. Specifically, his plug was the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the oh man who started America's war on drugs. Like, how do you even make sense well, of that? Like, did he say that it was just like, you know, uh, war wound treatment? Is that no, like he... you would hope. No, it, it's even worse than that. Oh, boy. Well, let's take a little break. And after this, I'll tell you about the man who was his plug, Harry J. Anslinger, and answer all your questions. Yeah. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. 
Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. All right, Elizabeth. Yeah. You ready to really get sick, twisted, and sideways? Always. <laughs> because we're about to get into the Harry J. Anslinger portion of this. Now, what do you know about, like, reefer badness, the war on drugs, the early years? Uh, the know, war on black culture, jazz, you know. Right. It's, it, you know, it, it's a panic. It's a yes, misplaced. Yes, it's a moral panic. Yeah. It's a lot of, like, uh, con- like taking a lot of social concerns and thro- lumping them together mm-hmm. and saying they're all going to, you know, go after your children. Yeah. So, the well, first, just to clear the air, I'll, I'll just... I'll confirm for you the allegations I'm throwing out there so casually. Yes. After Joseph McCarthy died, Harry J. Anslinger, the former federal head of the Bureau of Narcotics, he published a memoir called The Murderers. And in his memoir, Anslinger confessed his time as a drug dealer for America's leading commie with Witch Hunter, right? He basically discovered that one of the most powerful men in America was a morphine junkie. And he recalled how he confronted Joseph McCarthy about it. And the senator was unapologetic. Oh, he's like... Just like, he's like, what, you coming for old... Tailgunner Joe, bring it. <laughs> so he he actually goes on the attack because that's his thing. He threatened the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He's the junkie. He threatens the cop. Okay. So Anslinger quoted the senator, and he writing that he was warned, I wouldn't try to do anything about it, Commissioner. It'll be worse for you. And if it winds up in a public scandal, and that should hurt this country, I wouldn't care. The choice is yours. Oh, God. <laughs> so, no wonder he loves Roy Cohen. <laughs> so why did Harry J. Anslinger back down? Who is this Harry J. Yeah, Anslinger? who is this Harry J. Anslinger? I'm so glad you asked. Great question, Thank Elizabeth. Thank you so much. Harry J. Anslinger, he's why we fought and lost the war on drugs. Now, Anslinger, he was the head of the, as I said, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics for 32 years. He was the very first one, and he pretty much formed it. So he led the Bureau from its inception until his forced retirement in the 1970s. By mm-hmm. all accounts, Anslinger was an extremely racist, bigoted man. For instance, he despised jazz music. He tells agents to raid the home of jazz men and to, quote, shoot first and ask questions later. What? He particularly despised and feared Billie Holiday, personally. Anslinger did everything he could to make her life a living hell. Billie Holiday was a known heroin junkie yeah. and thus an easy target for him. So Anslinger had his agents hound and harass her for years, always under watch every day of her life once he was aware of her. He didn't rest until she was locked up in a West Virginia prison on a one-year stretch. They made a movie about it recently. That it's, the case was called oh, yeah, United yeah. States of America versus Billie Holiday. Yeah, I saw that. In her memoir, Billie wrote, that's just the way it felt. The United States of America versus Billie Holiday. Yeah. Now, even after she was out of prison, Anslinger, he assigned an undercover agent to get close to her, to get him the charges he needed to put her away forever. He picked a black undercover agent. They, it was very rare. He could this guy named Jimmy Fletcher. This agent did his part. He gets close to Billie Holiday, becomes her friend, starts doing drugs with her, and he arranged for her to be busted on a drug possession charge. And that charge meant she would lose her cabaret card in New York. Yeah. So now, we've talked about this in the past. The Lord Buckley, how when he passed, it was the end of the cabaret card system. Yeah. Well, at this point, this is the height of it. Very oh, much completely. enforced, right? So yeah. Billie Holiday couldn't perform in Harlem. She couldn't perform anywhere in New York. Right. Now, thanks to Anslinger and his felony, she can't perform anywhere in the United States. Yeah. So she has to like travel. She has to go to Europe. She has to go to Cuba. By the way, the drugs from the bust, they never got introduced 
into evidence to when she had to fight this case, she decided she would show them that she had been clean, that she was not on drugs, and that yeah. she had basically been, you know, the, the drugs had been, you know, faked. So Billie Holiday, she goes to rehab, and surprise, surprise, she didn't have a single moment of withdrawal. She was indeed clean. Wow. So the jury finds this out, they side with Billie Holiday. So this pisses off Anslinger. So what's he going to do? He reassigns Jimmy Fletcher, the undercover agent, to stay by her side, get me something to bust her. He drives her to the brink of an early death. And, and she was, indeed, at the end of her life, in a hospital bed, being treated for liver problems. Anslinger's agents, they spring into action. They claim that they found heroin hidden in a tinfoil envelope, suspended from a nail in the wall of her hotel room, her hospital bed, right? The government narcotics agents, they held her in custody in the hospital. And they basically, this means her friends, her family, yeah. nobody can visit her. So Lady Day, she dies with federal narcotics agents at her bedside. She's literally surrounded in her deathbed. Yeah, which they basically drove her to it. Yeah. So this is like how crazy he is. At one point, Anslinger, he's like he's like high on his power. Yeah. He plots to organize a massive nationwide roundup of all known pot smokers. This is the entire country. Good luck with that. He wrote to all of his agents, quote, prepare all cases in your jurisdiction involving musicians in violation of the marijuana laws. We'll have a great national roundup and arrest all such persons in a single day. So before he could have his nationwide raid, some senators, they catch wind of what he plans to do, right? Yeah. And they decide to question his bureau's new Gestapo-like tactics because some of them had just fought a war. They're like, didn't we just fight a world war to stop this sort of behavior? Right. yeah, exactly. And Anslinger's like, well, you know, my semi-fascistic plot here, it just, <laughs> it's a crackdown. And by the way, it's not focused on, quote, the good musicians, but the jazz type. That's what he said. So he didn't get approval for his nationwide we roundup. We all know what that, yeah. Now, meanwhile, remember, this is the same guy who is Joseph McCarthy's Morphine Connect. Yeah. This guy. So the irony is ridiculous. It's painful. Yeah. And not in that good, fun way. It's in that, like, American history way. Right. So anyway, so the Senator Joseph McCarthy and Harry Anslinger, like, how do they mix, right? Now, I told you, like, Anslinger is a prick, right? I told mm -hmm. you up top. We've kind of seen how he's a jerk with all of his behavior. Let's get into how he's a hypocrite. Yeah. Some might call Harry J. Anslinger the J. Edgar Hoover of the drug war. Uh -huh. This is fitting, right? He did have similar powers. He did lord over a federal bureau for decades. He held grudges against many of the same Americans, many of them black. Now, the two men, they were not particularly close. They were friendly, but they were not close. They were essentially rivals because J. Edgar Hoover famously didn't trust anyone. He was also very territorial. Yeah. Anslinger was smart enough not to trust Hoover, not to side with him. Smart. Also, he was smart enough not to grow his bureau too big that it threatened Hoover. So oh, yeah. Otherwise, Hoover would just swallow it into the FBI. So Anslinger, he's a cagey bureaucrat. He's figured out how to survive. And so, and as we saw with the Billy Holiday, like with J. Edgar Hoover, he was just as much of a bigot. So this guy, he loved to harass black celebrities, culture figures until they were dead. He's just a class act all the way around, Sounds right? It, yeah. So he makes his name for himself in the Prohibition. During Prohibition, he worked in the Bahamas. He tried to bring down rum runners like uh, your boy, the real McCoy. Yeah. Right? Okay. They may even cross paths. I don't Probably. know. But in 1930, he gets appointed by President Hoover to be the first commissioner of the newly established Federal Bureau of Narcotics, right? So he's the man who launched what would later become America's War on Drums. I'm sorry, that's a typo. America's War on Drugs. <laughs> Drugs. So anyway, he called it the War on Narcotics. It gets paired with the legal precedent of the Marijuana Act of 1937, and boom, this is the beginning of the War on Drugs. Yeah. So during the World War II years, Anslinger, he starts to play on the paranoia of the war to bolster the profile of his Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He needs yeah. to make some headlines, right? This plays well with the racist attitudes of the time. So the press, they start gleefully reporting about whenever Anslinger tells them stuff about the Japanese. So for instance, that they've been using dope as, quote, an instrument of national policy for the last decade to poison the American people. Now, remember, later on, it's going to be the Red Chinese. Sure. It's now it's else. the Japanese. So yeah. whatever enemy it is, they're plotting with they opium to take us right. down. 
Right. Same story. doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter if it's true or not true. It sells papers. Yeah. So after this war, the same approach of misinformation, it continues. The plot gets moved to China. The Reds are doing sure. it. Fierce. Why not? Right. 1950s roll on. Vague mood of paranoia and, and suspicion gets turned into a real era of paranoia. Now they love it. Politicians find they can use Anslinger's crusade to gain some media attention for themselves. They discover that fear sells just as well as sex in America. Yeah. They're like, oh, hot darn. Enter Senator Estes Kefauver. Oh, yes, hey, you remember him from the, the, from the comic book story. He's I still the one. don't know how his name is spelled. Kefauver. No, he he led his crusade. I told you against the perils of comic books in the 1950s. That's right. He was trying to use this same paranoia to get himself some uh, headlines of his own. Right. So he tries to leverage the growing paranoia, and he sides with Harry Anslinger. He sides with McCarthy. He sides with anybody. Well, once Harry Anslinger decides, oh, I'll play ball with this cat. Mm-hmm. He's another senator. I can work with. Outcome pamphlets. We get readers' digest articles, Time Magazine articles, all about the dangers of dope in America. Yeah. One pamphlet warned to families, our teenagers today are menaced by a danger more virulent than cancer, as deadly as the H-bomb. Do you know what that danger was, Elizabeth? Caffeine. Mexican pot. It was pot. Oh, Mexican yeah, not, pot. Not the pot we smoke now. That, that really strong stuff that's no. been all like, you know, chemically. With like crystals on exactly. it. Exactly. No, <laughs> it was just like that old Mexican ditch weed, like the sticks yeah. and stems that the, the baby boomers smoked, like on album records covers, <laughs> and they're like, separate not the seeds. It's all that brown. stuff. That was the great threat that was worse than the H-bomb. Oh, boy. Worse than cancer. I mean, like, take a step back. Worse than the H-bomb. Yes. We also, like, you know, as we're going to be putting money into these threats, we've decided we're going to put a lot of money into this threat and less money into cancer research. Because this threat is more of a threat. Smoke a J and suddenly all that's left on the sidewalk is their shadow. Give me a break. (laughs) So come 1950, the Senate launches a new special committee to investigate organized crime and interstate commerce. The chairman was Tennessee Senator Estes Kefauver. And now, like Joseph McCarthy's later Red Scare hearings, his subcommittee hearings were also televised. So once again, he's trying to work the fame game. And, he, you know, so Kefauver's hearings, you know, they were really, really powerful. Like, that's why McCarthy was like, I got to get in on this because Kefauver kind of set the mold for him. Yeah. Life magazine looked back a year after his, his hearings in 1950. So basically 1951, Life magazine wrote that, quote, the Senate investigation into interstate crime was almost the sole subject of national conversation. Newspapers gave it 10 times as much space as the Korean War. <laughs> The Forgotten War. So, yeah. Because they're all too busy listening to... Exactly. They're, they're actually worried about fighting the commies. They're fighting them in a war, but instead they go chasing this imaginary, yeah. elusive yeah. thing that they've come up with. Like, yeah. Ten times more attention. Anyway, star witness during these hearings was Harry J. Anslinger. He thrilled the public by being the first federal official to admit the existence of the mafia. He claimed that the gangster Lucky Luciano was in charge of all the narcotics in the United States. One man, Elizabeth. All of it. All the dope. He called the mafia Mafia, the Black Hand, which connected it to its Sicilian roots. Right, exactly. And that also gave it an allure that the news media loved, right? Sure. So before that, nobody wanted to admit the Mafia was real. They talk about the syndicate, blah, blah, mm-hmm. but the, not the Mafia, right? Yeah. So now, all of a sudden, there's the Mafia. But the real story is far more complex than the Mafia. Yeah. When it came to heroin and opium and morphine, he also went, oh, no, it's the Red Chinese. And he's like, he's got multiple enemies, <laughs> right? So the commies are the dope peddlers, and they're sending in drugs to our country to ruin your America. So now, at this 
this point, the truth, however, is actually the opposite because it was the nationalist Chinese, uh-huh. our allies, who were exporting the opium and the heroin from China. <laughs> it was not the communist. It was no. Shanghai Shex boys. So our allies selling us the dope. Anyway, Anslinger ignored that. And he, of course, because he preferred his vision. It was so much more powerful. Yeah. So also that guy's a gifted storyteller. Why go with the truth? Why exactly. be burdened with that? So American culture becomes convinced that it's about to be overrun by Mexican dope smugglers aided and abetted by a band of black jazz musicians, assisted by the inscrutable Chinese opium peddlers, all of them hell-bent on turning Iowa City into ground zero for like a full communist revolution. Sounds like a right? hell of a Totally party. reasonable. So now this fever paranoia, it isn't partisan, mind you. This is Democrats and Republicans. They yeah. are both in on this. Oh, yeah. And yeah. They sweep, they're swept up in the mood. The Democrats actually asked Harry J. Anslinger, who was a Republican, to run as the VP on the Democratic presidential ticket. Really? Yes. Because they cited, like, oh, this used to be, used to American politics tradition used to be split tickets. Yeah, so this is like yeah, a, a call to decency. Oh, We're going to get Harry Anslinger to help us. <laughs> anyway, this same cat who is hounding and harassing Billy Holiday at this exact same time uh-huh. on his little sick little pet mission, and he's also not busy creating the war on drugs. He's also, mind you, creating the legal justification for mass incarceration, right. also the justifications for all the like mandatory minimums and so forth. Right, yeah. all of this is happening while they chase these imaginary boogeymen, and yeah. he's getting heroin to his buddy. That's the like. <sighs> There, yeah, there's no substance to McCarthy or Harry J. Anslinger's multiple scare campaigns and the paranoia they stoke. They just make yeah. stuff up. Then they investigate. They ruin people's lives. Then McCarthy, he often didn't conclude his hearings. He would just make new up a new hearing and move on to that, and the press would move right on with him. <laughs> they would never conclude the hearing, just new allegations. All right on. Yeah, wash, rinse, repeat. Yeah. All the while, the press, as I said, happily to report it because the public bought lots of newspapers. They watched lots of news, and they this is how they helped grow the fear-mongering. Yeah. Anyway, back Back to morphine. Okay. Meanwhile, as I told you, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Harry J. Anslinger, is secretly the main morphine dealer to his buddy, the most powerful man in Washington. According to numerous sources I checked for this story to see if it was true, there was one source that convinced me the most, and I told you it was Harry J. Anslinger. <laughs> he penned in, memoirs, in his memoir, The Murderers, quote, one of the most influential members of Congress at the time, and one of my most dependable supporters was a confirmed morphine addict. He was an amiable man, but would do nothing to help himself to get rid of his addiction. He refused medical advice and insisted that no one would ever be permitted to interfere with him or with whatever habit he wished to indulge in. That was not all, Elizabeth. Hanslinger went on to write, quote, he was also a heavy drinker, but it was his addiction to morphine which was the greatest threat to himself and his country, even though in the national interest, his uninterrupted supply of the drug was guaranteed by my bureau. On the day he died, I mourned him deeply as a friend, but also thank God for relieving me of a great burden and a certain danger. Oh, God. Hanslinger summarized, it was a delicate moment in world affairs. There was imminent danger that the facts would become known and used to the fullest in the propaganda machines of our enemies. So he's worried that they're going to spin lies. Yeah. That's what he's worried about is the lies. It's the lies. Well, because you project what you know. Calls coming so, from inside the house. But how did the morphine dealing by the head of the Federal Bureau to a sitting U.S. senator, how did this even start? Like, yeah. what was the deal? Well, yeah. Elizabeth, close your eyes because I'd like you to picture it. You are currently in the U.S. Capitol, the wing of the Senate leadership offices. Specifically, you are in the office of the chairman of the most powerful subcommittee of the day, Senator Joseph McCarthy. It is mid-century America at its most mid-century. Outside the windows, thick, squat, round sedans drive luxuriously along the avenues of Washington, D.C. The cherry blossoms dot the trees. They are the last ones to fall in the season. Spring is saying goodbye. And you are an FBI listening device. 
Oh, nice. You were planted by one of J. Edgar Hoover's G-Men. You are a sleek and stylish little number placed in the glazing of a window pane. You are unlikely to ever be found, but you have a great view and you can hear everything. <laughs> you hear the door to the senator's office close. You see Senator Joseph McCarthy look up. He's sweaty-faced, nervous, like a kid caught with his hand in the cookie jar. That is, if that kid was a serious morphine habit and the kid was kind of jonesing for a hit and the hit was in the cookie jar. Anyway... <laughs> You turn your attention to the man who just walked in. You recognize him. He's been here before plenty of times. It's the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Harry J. Anslinger. He looks mad, but he's containing it, barely. He says in a clear, unmistakable voice, Senator, I know about your habit. Senator McCarthy sinks into his desk chair. The leather makes it sound kind of like a fart, but it's not a fart, but don't laugh. Anslinger, he sits opposite the senator across his desk. McCarthy responds, what do you think you know? Senator, I'm the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. My agents discovered... Senator McCarthy interrupts him. Wait. He reaches over to a fan near to his desk. He turns it on. A small tabletop fan it, with its metal blades begins to word, slice the air. It makes it difficult for you to hear, but the FBI, they made a damn good bug. <laughs> you can still clearly make out the men's words. McCarthy says in his brusque, bare-knuckle way, I don't care what you think you know. I'm not going to stop it. You can't stop me. Senator, if this were to get out, if America were to learn that a member of the... Of the U.S. blah, blah, blah. Look, baby needs this bottle, and I need my dope. That's just how it is, Harry. If you cut off my morphine, I will just go and buy heroin off the street from dope dealers. How long do you think that will last? Are you threatening me, Senator? You are riveted. All your days as an FBI bug, you have never heard anything as juicy as this. J. Edgar Hoover is going to lose his mind. Let me get this right. You are threatening me. If my bureau interferes with your dope supply, you will get intentionally busted and destabilize the entire U.S. government? You listen for Joseph McCarthy's response, but all you hear is the fan. And then, I want my dope. Diane Slinger, he counters. You can take a medical leave from the Senate. Nope, dope. Anslinger <laughs> reasons, Senator, dope. Anslinger gives in. You promise you won't go to the street pushers? I promise. Anslinger agrees. Fine, but you get your morphine from me, from a druggist of my choice. In return, I get all the dope I want. Anslinger accepts this deal with the devil. Agreed, all the dope you want. Yay, dope! So you cannot believe this is really happening, but you were there to hear every word. And there it was, the deal with the devil, Elizabeth. Nice. Now, despite the fact Anslinger, as I told you, hard-hearted bigot, mean-spirited hypocrite, a man who ruined lives, killed others for the same sins that he not only tolerated, but he aided and mm -hmm. abetted with his friends, you have to admit the guy was a loyal friend. <laughs> I guess. You know? Anyway, <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't know how many of my... My friends, I could convince to give me heroin if I was a sitting senator and they were the head of the war on drugs. Yeah, good point. I mean, these guys are some real criminals. Right. I mean, my yeah. friends are like pretend criminals compared to these guys. <laughs> anyway, of course, all this had to end. Senator Republicans, they eventually turned on Joseph McCarthy. In 1954, he gets censured. He remains a senator, mind you, but now he's a broken man. And he's still a full-on morphine junkie and an alcoholic. So he's just cruising as a senator for his last couple years, high as hell, sitting in the Senate. President Eisenhower, who is not known for his sense of humor, he dryly remarked that rather than McCarthyism, it was now McCarthy was him. Oh, oh burn. burn. Ouch. So eventually, Joe McCarthy dies in 1957 at the ripe old age of 47. Official cause Oof. of death, acute hepatitis, a.k.a. Infl inflammation of the liver. After yeah. he died, the story of his secret morphine habit gets out. Anslinger had been using the same druggist to get the morphine for Senator McCarthy. So what does this mean? Well, the druggist comes forward to the tabloids. He wants to cash out at this point. Of course, everyone. So then Anslinger, he went after the 
syndicated reporter who ran the story for the first time with the full powers of his office. He threatens to imprison the journalist for two years for violation of, I don't know, what, what do we got? Oh, the Har Harrison Act. Throws the Harrison Act at him for, and one provision about revealing the records of a pharmacist. <laughs> it's, oh, like, so well, it's basically a HIPAA violation yeah, before exactly. HIPAA. So the news story goes away. Joseph McCarthy, he cashed out early. Anslinger, though, he lived long enough to become a hateful old man. Yes, he even got to see the world change and all of his life work be washed away by the hippies. So Anslinger, <laughs> he was confronted with the emergence of the hippies in their 1967 Summer of Love. He definitely, of course, felt some kind of way about that. Right. So Anslinger, he wrote that the blame of the new generation belonged not to him and J. Edgar Hoover and their repressive tactics for social order. No, no, no. Not that everyone's rebelling against them. No, no, no. It was rather their parents and there was these professors and you know, Columbia University and so forth. Anslinger said he blamed, and I quote, permissive parents and college administrators, pusillanimous judiciary officials, do-gooder <laughs> bleeding hearts, and new breed sociologists with their fluid notions of morality. You see, to his <laughs> eyes, Elizabeth, what he saw was, quote, nothing less than an assault on the foundations of Western civilization. And that was way more of a force than he could possibly imagine he could confront. He said, the only persons who would frighten me are the hippies. So these are the things they're scared of. Hippies and some Mexican dope. That's right? what the, that scares them more than cancer, the H-bomb. Anyway, yeah. too bad he didn't live long enough to see our modern-day news chirons with kids today want to attack and dethrone God because yeah. this guy, he's up against... <laughs> anyway, he would have flipped. But what did Anslinger do professionally in the 60s once his old buddy Joe McCarthy kicked the bucket? Well, he partnered with the CIA and decided to create mind-control drugs. He got oh. in on the MK Ultra wagon. Oh, wow. Because that's chill, right? right? So Anslinger, he was conducting experiments with drugs to come up with a way to break down psychological defenses. Huh. Or as he put it in a 1968 interview, quote, we're trying to discover a truth drug by using peyote and sodium amytal. Oh. Can you imagine them practicing with peyote and sodium yeah. That's oh, a trip. God. Anyway, so this guy, he sure seems to be doing exactly what he claims everyone else wants yeah. to do. Like, he's yeah. really good at, like, that's usually the tell with these guys, it right? Is. It's, it's like the they project onto you what they themselves would think to uh -huh. do. Anyway, eventually, after decades of work and after he'd bolted and braced his classist, racist, xenophobic war on drugs onto American culture enough that it would stick, Anslinger felt like his job was done. So he left the bureau. During the Nixon years, his end starts to sneak up on him at that end deep in pain when he was the one who was finally the one hurting when he was aching suddenly that devil drug opium it was heaven on earth <laughs> and that's how he went out dope to the gills on morphine wow yeah so what's our ridiculous takeaway here oh my god i you know don't lie <laughs> of all this that you just don't lie don't lie <laughs> it's, yeah. it's the it's the perpetual lying and the and thinking that you're getting it's a means to an end that you've got to you've got to do this mm -hmm. to get to the end of it all and it's like the lies become the end yeah the means and the end yeah and we all suffer for it also this demonization of like the artist and the intelligentsia mm -hmm. to turn the public against them you know why to keep the public from wanting to be artists or intelligentsia yeah. or educated or to enjoy life sans fear yeah yeah. So, yeah, my ridiculous takeaway, once again, thanks for asking, Elizabeth. You're so welcome. I'm is, so glad you asked. I want to do heroin with Joe McCarthy. No, you don't. <laughs> I don't want to do that. So, Can you imagine how horrendous that would uh, be? That's like one of the worst things I could possibly imagine on Earth. Anything. Would be all right, well, there you go. That's all I got for us. You can find us online at Ridiculous Crime, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we have a website, RidiculousCrime.com. You can always leave us a talk back on the iHeart app and email us if you like at RidiculousCrime at gmail.com. As always, start Dear Elizabeth. Okay, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next round. Ridiculous Crime is hosted by Elizabeth Dutton and Zaren Burnett. Produced and edited by Ball Gunner Dave Kustin. 
Research is by Marissa Brown, Tar Heroin, and Andrea, I love a good jazz song, Sharpened Here. Our theme song is by Thomas the Dope Man, Lee, and Travis the Beatnik Dutton. The host wardrobe provided by Botany 500. Executive producers are Ben Kami Lover Bolin and Noel Brown versus the Board of Education. Ridiculous Crime. Say it one more time. Ridiculous Crime. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroesfilm.com to get tickets now. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. CNN.